नमस्ते जय हिंद वेलकम टू अ स्पेशल एडिशन ऑफ ए एन आई पॉडकास्ट विद स्मिता प्रकाश हेल्ड एट द रायसीना डायलॉग्स इन मार्च 2023. ट्वेंटी थ्री द टॉपिक ऑफ डिस्कशन विद अफगानिस्तान एंड आफ्टर बिट्रियल एंड माइग्रेशन since the us withdrawal in march 2020 and the consequent taliban takeover in afghanistan a tragedy has been unfolding in the country there are many aspects to this issue in this podcast we spoke about the question of the humanitarian consequences of the taliban takeover are there new political dynamics shaping us engagement with pakistan and afghanistan and what is the role of others such as india and the eu in the humanitarian and security aspects in the podcast i spoke with dr kosh ara fellow at the atlantic council scowcraft center for strategy and security usa he's previously served as the senior transition advisor at the us embassy in kabul and coordinated the completion and execution of the first tranche of the transition strategy Shabnam Nasimi former policy adviser to the UK Minister for Refugees and Minister for Afghan Resettlement UK Shabnam is a political commentator on British politics foreign policy immigration and ethnic minorities Yunus Okasi partner EY in Germany he's been head of the office of Christian Democratic Union general secretary and first individual with a migration background to hold this position Uh, Shabnam, I'll begin with you. Um, you're a prominent British Afghan uh, political social activist. Uh, you were just eight years old when you fled your home country, and uh, that's when the Taliban came in. You once said, "I took my refugee status as an opportunity and not a disadvantage." Tell us your story. Of course. Um, so my family migrated to the UK in 1999 during the first era of Taliban rule in Afghanistan. and it was me and my sister uh with my family uh who fled um and as we've seen now recently um and uh, as has become evident afghanistan is no place for uh, a girl to study uh and um have any sort of aspirations and, and hopes and so that's what one of the reasons why we left the country and over the last 24 years or so um my family and myself have spent uh, much of our time um and the opportunities that have been presented to people uh like us to be able to speak for the people of Afghanistan um who are one of the most disadvantaged deprived uh, nations in the world and particularly post August 2021 uh when uh, the Taliban returned um it has been devastating for so many across the world particularly the diaspora community who have I guess there's a sense of responsibility and duty uh particularly when there's media suppression in the country there's very little coverage of what's going on inside uh on the ground uh, it is up to people like us who have those connections uh, cultural understanding religious understanding geopolitical understanding to be able to make the global community aware of what's happening in, in inside and it is honestly uh catastrophic i think one of the things that i've seen just um have I've been inspired by attending the Raisida conference uh, this year this is my first time uh, in a south asian country neighboring afghanistan uh, seeing particularly women so prominent uh, speakers and in, in government positions and i think that's uh, something 
that has made it a lot more pressing now to try and see how we can make sure that we support the women of Afghanistan. Uh, as you may have heard on the news, they are banned from going to school, going to university, from working, from having any public profile or role in society, which is why we're now at a critical juncture. Um, this might seem like a faraway problem, uh, but I, th I don't think ignoring Afghanistan is ever going to be the solution. It can't be a faraway problem uh, for, for long. 9-11 um, happened because we ignored six years of Taliban rule inside the country. And it, uh, you know, my hope and what so many of us have been advocating for is we don't want a return of another horrendous terrorist Islamist attack anywhere in the world, both outside but also inside the country, for us to begin to pay attention and think of this as a serious problem, not only for, for the country but for the global community. Do you have family and relatives in uh, friends in uh, Afghanistan? Do they tell you? Oh, about of course. It? My, my, my maternal uh, family, my grandparents, uh, aunts, cousins, they're all inside the country. And particularly for the female members of my family uh, who are, are unable to, to, um, to be educated, um, I'm constantly in contact trying to see what I can do. Um, just last week, uh, one of my uh, um, young uh, female cousins who, who is uh, living in Kabul. Um, is unable to go to university, but she's asked if I can find help for her to get a laptop so that she can oh. study at least at home and find a way to continue her education uh, within her, her household. So the, the connection and the, the, um, the, pl the problems inside the country is very close to home for me. It's something I'm fa uh, having to face uh, and deal with uh, on a regular basis, uh, which is why it's so, so much more pressing to see what we can do. Yeah, of course, uh, Shabnam uses the terms like catastrophic and devastating it's these are terms you must have heard you know being uh, since you served as senior advisor for strategic engagement at USAID um, you must have heard these terms so often when talking about Afghanistan what in your opinion led the US to leave Afghanistan in such a hurry uh, it led to the total wipeout of all that was achieved in 20 years Right, so I think I, I'd agree with her and her use of the terms that she mentioned. Um, I was in Kabul at the U.S. Embassy for a little short of three years, so I had the pleasure and honor to um, work in our mission there. Um, why we left, I think the short answer to that is that the support for the Afghan mission among the American public was waning. And it has been 20 years um, and I think the public, American public, that is, didn't see a way out of it um, and saw this a never-ending, ever-going um, sort of a military campaign or at least a military presence. So both President Trump and President Biden, I think, um, were looking for a way out, um, got the way out. Um, it was certainly uh, something that most of the military and the civilian folks that had served in Afghanistan um, took it very hard, um, uh, including myself. I think the way we left was um, dishonorable, perhaps, um, and certainly a, one can talk about a betrayal, but that's a use, but I have to say it's a betrayal more of our own vision, our own ambition, but we never made a promise to Afghanistan that will always be there. So that, mm. uh, the, the promise to Afghanistan was to help Afghanistan stand on its feet. And after 20 years not being able to do so, people said, we'll cut our losses and leave. Now, this argument could be made that we should have stayed there longer. Um, I certainly made that argument and believe in that particular case. But uh, uh, 
but you're a democratic country and you respond to people there are. Having said that, I want to make a couple of points, I think, just to go off it. One, that it is probably one of the worst sort of, um, the top three big refugee humanitarian crises. Uh, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, it's kind of, if you look at the UN um, HCR reports, there are about 6 million people uh, since 2021, since we left, have been displaced. About half of them are internally within Afghanistan. About 2.5 have been refugees outside. Most of them are in Pakistan and Iran, uh, followed by Turkey and Germany and the rest. And almost 80% of them are women and children. Off, off the six million displaced. So, um, and, and the biggest sort of humanitarian crisis is one of hunger and starvation. I mean, even on a, when we were there, uh, for, you know, the hunger issue and being able to get the nutrient value was, was tough, even with the American presence when we were there. Uh, it's a country that takes, its caloric intake is heaviest on wheat, so it's a non-eating country, it eats a lot. It imports a lot of not only wheat but milling from Pakistan and other places. So the, there's a humanitarian crisis and related to that there is also a, a food security crisis which is further. Okay. And for all of us who, uh, especially in this sort of liberal era where people talk a lot about women's rights and others, um, I think the biggest plight uh, in Afghanistan is off the women and the children and the, the greatest loss we fell was, I mean, one of the things we used to often say, but what were the great, uh, you know, assets? What have you done in Afghanistan? The most ex important thing we always said was, when we started there, there were no women in school. And by the time we ended, there were like 50% of the students were women. So you had all this, and Afghanistan is a younger country than India. So, you know, 70, 80% of them are under 25, 30 years old. So most of that, People have only seen life with U.S. presence in the country, mm. with having internet and all the rest and the school and the opening. And so for them to take this shock all of a sudden is actually substantially more dark and stark than it was in the previous era. So because they had more and they lost more uh, than the last go around. So... Uh, by every stretch of imagination, it's a, something that we can all take a collective responsibility that we weren't able to do it. Most of the responsibility lies on Afghan rulers and Afghan leaders because at the end of the day, it wasn't Americans or NATO or the coalition. It was really Afghan leaders who let Afghan. But Afghan young population uh, was let down, yes, I think by us all. Okay. I'm going to get to the betrayal part uh, later in the podcast. Yunus, I'll come to you. Um, the food security part that Kosh mentioned and uh, so did Shabnam, you know, they need food, right? The most important part is that the basics they need. Um, Germany recently pledged an aid of 90 million euros. And uh, even as a report came out that 24 million Afghans, uh, they need immediate help. Now, Yesterday, I did a podcast in which uh, there was a journalist and uh, what she said was that the aid is not reaching the Afghans. How to stem this? How to stem this problem? This is the biggest problem, I think, that we have from the German perspective or from the European perspective. This is exactly that we have been doing for the last years since uh, 
the U.S. have been there. Over 45 nations have been in Afghanistan. We haven't helped them so much. Um, educate, enable soldiers, um, democracy, etc. There is one thing that we have learned. Very sad to say, but we cannot export democracy somewhere where we want to have it. That's the first thing. And the second thing, if, if we have been seeing and why this fail of Afghanistan came so fast of those two days or three days is because the whole help that we have been doing for the Afghan National Army, it has been so corrupt. People haven't know if they get paid or not paid, giving them so many weapons, etc. They also the Taliban reached those weapons that we have sending for the Afghan National Army. And the same is also with the food security that you have been talking about now is that we are helping the Afghans and we want to help them. There is a willing also from the European perspective, also if you can't see that outside of Europe, but there is a willing to help the Afghans. But also the truth is we don't know who's reaching this help or not reaching this help. Mm -hmm. So this is sadly to say, and I think this is the one thing that we have worked on that. There were mistakes made, uh, which, you know, we discussed this uh, right at the beginning, that, you know, the, the, the weapons that is falling in the hands now, there's narco trade, there's all kinds of things which are happening. If we, if we focus on the things which went wrong, uh, and the Afghans pay the price for it, you know, uh, Pakistan's interference, for example. Um, what do you think that, you know, where all did the West go wrong? <laughs> Um, with regard to Pakistan using Afghanistan as a backyard, using military, uh, their military to uh, Taliban contact. And that continues even now. That would take probably more than 30 minutes that we've got <laughs> here to discuss. And it's been talked about a lot, so I don't want to rehash. Sure, uh, but what about the... now? Let, let's see now. Let's not talk about the past. Has the West, which is like including Europe, uh, has America learned from those lessons or have they just washed their hands off that we can't deal with this anymore? No, I think one of the things we're very good at, especially our military, is about lessons learned. So I think, you know, uh, one can look at in real time the changes that were made in our military posture and a civil coordination in both Iraq and Afghanistan. I think that's exemplary. I'm a huge fan of that. But so... Of course, our military has taken and taken a lot of lessons from sort of the kinetic part of it. But again, Afghanistan was not a military failure. It was a political, diplomatic failure. Uh, so I think it's important to mention both Iraq and Afghanistan often are couched as if American military led and somehow led the nation or the world down. They won every task that was given to them. It was the diplomatic, political solution at the end of it uh, which I think there's a lot to be desired. And certainly um, the deal that was made uh, started by on the President Trump and then by concluded by President Biden, I think diplomatically, uh, the deal, which is basically said, we need to leave Taliban, we need to really leave, and we'll take your word that you'll be good, that to what you stay us, you'll do it, especially on women's rights. And then didn't pan out. And nobody really who had dealt with Taliban or broadly with Afghanistan for the last 20 years should have believed it or had any ground yeah. to believe it. Um, having, but having left on this issue now, 
we are kind of not in a particular position to bilaterally engage with Afghanistan, largely because of Taliban. So the way of engagement in Afghanistan today is primarily through UN or multilateral agencies. So either mm. it's the UNHCR, either it's World Food Program, those are the entity to do so. And that's on the humanitarian side of stuff. Um, again, we cannot have, back to my political argument, you keep losing, they keep lying to you, and you still start making a deal. And so we can't, exactly. so we had this yeah. Taliban particular deal. Now they've, they said they will take care of the rights that were provided to the women. They did not, education. Initially they did it, now they're even drawing from it. So then working with them and providing support further just undermines your own engagement and it doesn't lead to any effective results. Sure. Humanitarian side, I think substantially the way the West is already working with it is through UN, through the World Bank, through the Asian Development Bank, to the where it's appropriate. The second element is now it's really the neighbor and the region to provide a solution more than Europe or West even. Mm -hmm. So it depends on how much are Central Asian countries willing to step in. They haven't, relatively speaking, with the refugees and the support as much as Pakistan and Iran have been the the biggest yeah. sort of... So a regional solution for Afghanistan is probably the way to go, and we can support that perhaps. Okay. Shavnam, you know, when we talk about the failures, to the people of a country, especially Afghanistan, it doesn't matter whether it was a military success but a political failure, military success but a diplomatic failure. As far as they are concerned, there's no food on the table, not even a table. There's no food. The children can't go to school. The women can't go to work. They can't go to school. They can't go to colleges. So, you know, it's a, it's a failure all around. One, how, what is the solution to that? Because the world seems at, you know, there's a, there's a fatigue which has come in. Nobody wants to discuss it. Even at at uh, seminars and conferences, Afghanistan has just fallen off the map. Everybody's talking about the Ukrainian conflict or Central Asia, but this has really fallen off that the high table, let me say that. Um, is a regional solution possible? Even, even if you see it in security terms, they, there is no one view on the on this because when the security conference was held in December, everybody in the region has a different boy, whether it's Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Pakistan, India, Iran, everybody in this area has a different solution to mm -hmm. uh, Afghanistan. Yes. Um, thank you. Well, look, I think first and foremost, we are 18 months in since the Taliban takeover. And I think one of the reasons why there is so much fatigue, confusion as to what the solution would be is people's understanding of the Taliban. Now, the, the regular response I get is this is an Afghan problem. It is now up to the de facto Afghan authorities to figure out a way out through this, this mess and support its people. However, when it comes to the country itself, even when it was the Doha peace process between the US and the Taliban, and you know, going back generations, the fate of Afghans has never been decided by Afghans uh, themselves. It's always been either decided from outside or by other political leaders and the global community. And that is where the problem is. The people of Afghanistan did not welcome the Taliban with open arms. They were not elected. They didn't go, uh, enter no, the country yes. uh, um, 
through the will of the people, they were they, they came in through violence and through fear, which is what their uh, which which is what their tool is today in order to be able to control the country. Now, you mentioned some of the really good points around humanitarian issues. Uh, I mean, for example, twenty almost twenty eight point three million uh, people the UN has reported uh, is on the brink of starvation. There's displacement. Uh, 75% of the population is under 25, which makes it a very young country uh, that has not lived through the first era of Taliban rule. So this is all very new. Um, and so if we're expecting the people of the country to figure out a solution, we need to first of all acknowledge what their will is and what, what their way out is. People compare Afghanistan to Ukraine and other countries. Ukraine, you provided weapons, billions of aid to fight. How can we expect the people of Afghanistan to fight for their rights on an empty stomach with no weapons when weapons were collected, actually, the, the minute the Taliban came returned to Afghanistan in August, they went house to house, took everyone's weapons, so no one can form any sort of form of resistance or social change or, or actively stand up for their rights. Um, so I think I, I agree very much so that the Western interest has sort of diminished. And what I think for many people inside the country, the expectation now, now is to see Muslim-majority countries to stand up and to speak up for the people. That This is not Islamic. What you're doing to the people of Afghanistan, whether it's on education, on work, on compulsory hijab, on all these sort of every aspect of a person's life, this is not what Islam teaches. Because there are many, as, as you, I hope you will agree, Muslim countries around the world where women's rights, human rights are respected. Mm. Um, and actually today, Amnesty International has... Um, called for an urgent, independent, uh, investigative mechanisms to be put in place to investigate the human rights violations that have taken place over the last couple of, uh, of months. Um, so there is clearly, I mean, in the 21st century, it is a tr human tragedy that this is taking place in the heart of Asia. Um, and so for, for a solution to be made, we need to start engaging with the people uh, what people are, are frustrated in seeing as well is that when UN delegates um, visit Afghanistan to put pressure on the Taliban, to meet with the Taliban, they're not meeting with the women who are out on the streets, risking their lives, protesting uh, every few months uh, for, for, their, for their right to education or for their right to work, with the slogan, work, uh, food, freedom. Um, we're still, it's, it's, we, we don't seem to learn from our mistakes. We're still repeating the same thing that we did over the last 20 years, or in terms of the history of Afghanistan. The people don't seem to matter. And that's where that sense of betrayal and heartache comes from. When will the international community recognize what the will of the people is? And I think that's what's something we need to start recognizing and take into account. Just have a question back. So which country do you see to, to lead this? If, when you were when you talking about Muslim countries needs to stood up and said, so whom do you see in that? So if I you mean, take names, I mean, of course, which I mean, Qatar, country? Qatar, for example, it's... it's all of OIC, I would think. Oh, of course, all of, all of Why doesn't OIC step in? Yeah. Why, why always look towards the EU or towards America? Why not? There are rich countries in the organization of Islamic countries, so why absolutely. not? Yes, absolutely, that's right. But I don't think it's a good idea to make it as a religious religion problem, which is say that those religion. countries who are having the same religion should get, take more care about it or not. I, what, I'm, what I was missing now is what kind of role the Afghans in Afghanistan, what kind of role they can take care of, what kind of what they can do now. This is what I was missing. So is there anything that Afghans they by can't. themselves... They can't do anything in the country. How can you do something with an empty stomach and nothing to fight for? It's, it's, it's unrealistic, and I think that's what the frustration is com uh, comes from. How does the world expect 
the people inside the country, the men and women, the children to fight for their rights when there is no global support. And when you talk about what Muslim countries, we have Pakistan is- on one side, Iran on the other, Central Asian countries, the Arab League. There is a huge global community. And I'm not saying that Muslim countries need to care more than the rest of the world. I'm saying we share the values more closely with the Muslim countries. And more importantly, the Taliban are um, introducing laws based on Sharia law. There needs to be more clarity and, and engagement with the Taliban to make it clear that this is not Islamic in yeah, any way and form. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely underline it, but I don't know if Pakistan and Iran are the right partners for that. So that's the, that's the sad thing also. You need, to, you need also to see the realistic, how it's going on. I mean, Iran and Pakistan is not seriously the real no, no, partnership. No, I, I was making point of the neighbors, but there so, is many I mean, more exactly, and countries. that's the problem. So the neighbors are also, are also not the right neighbors. Yeah. So that's the frustration. And it's not that you don't have any global support. There is a big global support. And it was there for more over than years and years and years for global support. What is the global support right now? By condemning, every time there's some sort of a new order by the Taliban, the international response we hear is, we condemn this. This needs to go beyond condemnation. You need to hold them to account. Where are the mechanisms? We talked about aid earlier. You mentioned that aid is, uh, first of all, the Taliban banned women from working for NGOs recently, which as a result, major international organizations like Save the Children, Oxfam, Care International, and others stop their work. Um, and any aid that is currently provided is going through the Taliban. There is no mechanism of accountability taking place. Rural communities are not accessing this aid. So what we're doing is, this is this a problem, that the last 20 years' mistakes are repeated again. You are not looking at this in a transparent way. You are still engaging with the Taliban uh, as though nothing has changed. Um, there, there are actively actions that can be taken. We are just not willing to take those actions. That's like, the problem. You know, you know uh, EU itself has, I think, uh, since 2016, given some $5 billion, right? So the European way of doing things is here, take the money. Yeah. To assuage... This is not maybe yeah. the right way. And it's also not take the money. And this is exactly not what you want to do. I mean, It comes from a good place in the heart. I'm not, 40, I'm not uh, 45, questioning that. O- over 45 nations have been taking a role about Afghanistan for the last years. And the question is also, this is exactly what we have been talking about before. I mean, what's the result of that? What is the result of this? Over 45 nations have been taking care for years and years and years. What's the, resu- what's the result? So, the result? The last 20 years was the result. The last 20 years. I, yes, I, I remember actually traveling to Afghanistan from, the last, uh, from 2006 onwards, every year. And whilst I'm not saying that the international intervention in Afghanistan was perfect, it was far from it. Uh, there was corruption, of course, there was still security issues. But every time I visited, I saw hope. There was more uh, girls in school than any other time. There was ch- uh, a change in, in political system. More women were in parliament. There were introductions around human rights across the country. I mean, there was a clear change yeah, over the Shabnam, last 20 years. I think years. what Eunice is saying is that that was the path, and that is the time when they should have seized yeah. control. I think that's exactly, what you're getting absolutely. at. Absolutely. Because yes. what has happened is the slide into the Taliban rule is what is causing the fatigue and the frustration in many Western democracies that we've done what we could and Afghanistan hasn't stepped up or the Afghans didn't step up. I understand your point of view that how do you step up on an empty stomach, but that's now, right? That, that window of opportunity that was there. That didn't happen. Kosh, this, I need to come back to Pakistan. I will come back to you because you're the American sitting out here. So I am going to come back to you. That, you know, when we talk about uh, the, the situation, 
yesterday at at this podcast that we were doing it comes to the same thing unless you stop terrorism in a country nothing else works so america did not it kept using pakistan as the front line on fighting terror and by doing that you made afghanistan fall more and more into the abyss it was like wearing blinkers all the time why didn't the americans realize that this slide is going to happen so there are two parts one i i, I think you're misstating the fact substantially um which is that we don't know the threat that pakistan poses to afghanistan so we were there the military there's there's uh, american blood on hands of the people that you're referring to so we are very well aware of how much the sort of activities that happen from pakistan over to afghanistan the second part is related to what can you really do about pakistan and be our ability to say okay there shall be no terrorism in pakistan i don't think anybody in pakistan can decide that and control it let alone somebody in america uh, pakistan is a is an interesting uh, and increasingly perhaps rapidly going through a failed state because of the inherent inconsistencies within its governing system it's a governing structure which is a a deal between the landowner community between i think the more fundamentalist group and the army and and at that some at some point of time there was some order to this bizarre tripartite relationship increasingly it's unfurling now you see that neither one of them are in fully control of where it heads so the internal system and durations of pakistan are such that the idea that somehow we or anybody else can force pakistan to sort of abide by one way or the other uh, it, it's not possible even even the army cannot do it and in is in present yeah, I situation i beg to differ on this no, i mean i i, I, I think, think um, again have this engagement so yeah. the issue being yes pakistan remains a source of instability in afghanistan you and i may differ as to how well pakistan is able to sort of it has an ebbs and flow in it and certainly it had a when we were there uh, you had a little bit of a control but now that's fallen apart and even taliban and pakistan is having a increasingly sort of fractured relationship even today and i think more so as it goes on yeah. so that's a so that's a complicated part and i know we are sitting in india so pakistan is a hot topic and i'm happy to talk about it but i think a a bigger issue uh is to refer back to what can we do i mean we can cut this 17 different ways but the realistic one so i i both agree with shabnam and i think it's really people like yourself who will keep the call going because the rest of us have moved on to indo pacific and foip and ukraine yeah. and so it'd be people like yourself will have to continue to make sure we don't forget uh, so that's number one and then second you'll have to be realistic when you say you got to hold taliban accountable hold taliban ac- i mean so how i mean we don't have those tools we're not giving money to taliban when you say don't give money to taliban then you'll have a humanitarian crisis and you'll say okay now we're not giving money at all and people are dying so it's a we don't have that many chits to play with taliban so the question really at end of the day comes up and i also slightly take a different view afghans have been fighting on empty stomach through entire their entire history they they're, they're tough fighters so mm-hmm. fighting on empty stomach is not neither new nor foreign to them 
They can do that. But there is an issue that at the end of the day, Afghans have to determine whatever the future is. The outsiders have tried it now, uh, the Brits, the Russians, and us, and it hasn't really worked. And so whatever that shape takes away, when there will be a, a worthy group within Afghanistan that we can support, I think you'll find support again. Yes. Yeah, in in absence of that, you're in a situation where you're literally limited to engaging with humanitarian and UN agency. One more step, though. I think there's, a, there's always a theme at Ricina, which, first of all, thanks to RF, thanks to you, it's, I think, the best sort of uh, gallery of people, interesting mm -hmm. people coming together. Um, there's always a theme that, you know, we're, the world is too U.S.-reliant, we can do it, India is leading the G20, the global south, we have the voices, other configurations should come up. Well, I completely agree with Shabnam. Have at it. Tell us how the other configuration works in your neighborhood and resolve it. Don't always come to us then to that we fail this. This is a fantastic opportunity. Let India take the lead. Work with Indonesia, a country, the largest Muslim country, completely detached, taken the least amount of refugees from Afghanistan. Let them step up. Gutter, I2U2, another relationship with the UAE, and with Gutter, they are, both UAE and Gutter are becoming the biggest investment and financial hub into Central Asia, largely and Caucasus area. Have at it. Work towards the great Central Asian country. So this is a fantastic opportunity for the so-called Global South and his anointed leaders to come and find and say, this is how it's done. And I would be the first one to say, Ada, that is fantastic. They got together and they showed the right way. So it'll be nice to put some words and walk the talk, which we hear all the time about well, how, okay. how we're going to do it. Right. Uh, <laughs> before I come to you, Shabnam, uh, I'm going to ask one last question to you, Yunus. Um, you know, this Global South taking the lead on it, which, uh, which America keeps saying this, and even in India say that we need to do it. But the Global South is so divided. Uh, right now, and more so because of you know the uh, Asian conflict and because of uh, supply chain issues, because of the Asian conflict, the war, the war, Ukrainian uh, Russian war, all these issues. Now, tell me what is the bandwidth left in Europe to deal with this Afghan issue now, or are they just done with it? That fatigue? No, we are definitely not done. I mean, you need to know the biggest Afghan community in Europe is in Germany. First of all, I mean, exactly what we have been saying. We have so many people in Europe. We have so many people from Afghanistan. There are many people, and that's a definitely nothing that we will not forget what we have been doing. And there is still support n coming from Germany, from European Union. Uh, this is definitely, we are not done. But I just can underline what... Um, uh, the previous speaker have been saying is if there is someone to support then I think the support will get back this is definitely the case right uh, final comments uh, Shabnam you've heard both the gentlemen what do you have to say look I understand that Afghanistan is a, an incredibly complex country uh, suffering almost over, over 43 years of conflict internal conflict uh, but also before that in terms of its history uh, and, and uh, geographical position but I think that, you know, I understand the concerns in terms of, well, what do we do? You know, we can, what's done is done. Uh, we've got to look at the next phase now. And there are lots of things that can be done. Um, the, like I said, I, I 
very much stress that the fate of the people of Afghanistan has never been decided inside and with the people. Um, so I think a political opposition uh, is already starting to be formed. There are people both inside and outside the country who are working towards some sort of a united position on uh, uh, the future of the country. I w I'd love to see the international community, the West and other neighbors to support this movement uh, and provide that platform, amplifying uh, their voices to create a credible, uh, transparent, a united political opposition, because I don't think the Taliban will, will last. It, this is... Uh, you can't control the country through through fear. It, oh my it, God, I've heard this for, too long for, for, with for, Afghanistan for, that you can't forever. control. And, and, and there will no. be at some point, and th th I think I completely agree, the problem with Afghanistan is every few years there's a yeah. new system, you know, we bring some sort of solution and then it turns back. Yes. Uh, so I, I get that. Um, and it is unfortunate that that's the way it is for, for Afghanistan in terms of history and its position. Um, but I do believe that this isn't going to last. Why is there no resistance? Like even in Iran, you know, with, the, with regard to the hijab thing, you saw resistance, but there's nothing that you're seeing uh, anymore in Afghanistan. It's like as if they've accepted the fate. Well, look, you can't, the, the, the comparison between Iran and Afghanistan is that Afghanistan um, is an incredibly um, patriarchal, but also very traditional society. Uh, we still haven't seen men come out in the streets supporting women and standing alongside them. Uh, in terms of education, Iran, of course, is, it's, it's further ahead. Um, and the people recognize what their rights are. Even within Afghanistan, um, the, the people that we do see out on the streets are the educated, those in, in capital cities, the rural communities. You've got to recognize your human right first before you stand out you know, and mm. speak up. Um, so I think for Afghanistan, even in the last 20 years, some of the mistakes we made, we net, international organizations didn't actually tap in and work with rural communities, those who don't have access to technology, don't have access to, uh, to sort of uh, the progressive uh, demand for democracy and freedom. It's working with those to educate them and understanding what their human rights. Unfortunately, like I said, Afghanistan is still decades apart even from in comparison to its neighboring countries um, so what we what we saw in Iran probably is not something we're going to see in Afghanistan anytime soon but what I am trying to say I guess is those who are able to speak up whether they're inside or outside uh, diaspora led movements those are the people that we need to try to help because ignoring Afghanistan can't be a solution we can't say it's a fatigue this is you know Afghanistan history it is what it is um, it's up to you know we've got to leave them figure it let them to figure it out but, you know for how long and we've yeah, got to be in the right. Afghanistan no, works. and we've got to. We, you know, this is a time where we've got to prove we're going to be on the right side of history because uh, you know millions of lives are on the line right now. Eunice, what about the the, the refugees? Uh, you know, who who are there in Germany? What about their cultural uh, integration? Is it complete? Or like Chabnam said, in uh, you know that she used that as an opportunity. She didn't let it. Uh, you know, curb her, curtail her. Uh, being a refugee in a European country. What about in Germany? How is that there? I think, I mean, we are, I mean, the question is who is coming to Germany? What kind, of, what kind of people are coming? What kind of refugees? This is the first question. I can just tell from my perspective, uh, from the first refugee, let's call it crisis in Europe that we had to 2014, 2015, 2016. So I've co-founded with some friends of mine an online digitalization university where especially people from Afghanistan who came to Germany, who doesn't have any documents, any papers, if they have any degrees or not degree, just to study online, just to have, be there for two years to study online, to, uh, to collect their credits, to reach a bachelor degree, 
after the two years, we can see what um, the German government is saying, if they can stay or not staying, not to losing their time, to study, to have the education, and in the third year to graduate after, after everything is clarified, if they have the German skills, if they are integrated, if they have a possibility to stay, uh, just not to lose any time. And I think this is the things that we are needing if people, if they are coming to a country, not to lose time and to think about what they're going to do when I get my documents, to use the time to be integrated, to be educated. This is the thing what we can do. And I think that we have many Afghans, as I say, the biggest community in Europe is Germany. We have over 400,000 Afghans in um, Germany. And I think um, there are many people of them integrated. Look at us. I have self my roots somewhere else as in Germany. My parents are from Morocco. So there is always a way if they are willing. Right. Kosh, the final word I'll give to you. Um, you have national security experience too. Um, you know, the in the past uh, couple of years, uh, there's been talk that uh, you have to see this from a security perspective too. Uh, the Indian National Security Advisor said that there's, there's need to evolve a mechanism uh, where there's intelligence and security cooperation on Afghanistan to set aside differences that you may have about what Afghanistan needs, what Afghanistan wants, to set aside regional needs, you know, like, or national needs, like what India thinks Afghanistan needs or what Pakistan thinks in Afghanistan needs, and just get down to cracking on, on ISKB, on Taliban, on whatever is needed to bring about first peace and security there, and then deal with the other issues. Can you do that as piecemeal? First of all, it's very case-specific. So I think you never go into any of the national security issues with just one. You'd react to the system. As you've heard several times in the Army, uh, you know, you have a plan, and the first thing you time you hit in the face, out goes the plan. So I think is the nimbleness of how do you work. The Largely the impact on the security thing would be to contain the security threats from Afghanistan in the region. So that would be, and that's what... Particularly, of, you know, India has a point of view, but certainly of Pakistan and Iran and Central Asia has it. And that's why Central Asia is not taking refugees and taking a pretty strong line. So that's that perspective. Uh, and I think sharing of information, that's all that's happening. You heard the Quad doing an yeah. anti-terror. So th that sort of a stuff we're doing it anyway. And there will be... In but you have to deal with two important issues. One, you know... Those who have served in Afghanistan from our side, it's very easy to fall in love with the country and its people. So it, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's lifelong friendships in the, in the sort of war zone. So it's very tough to leave those people and even today help them as much as one can in an individual way. The second, I've never ever served in a country where I was more impressed by the women than I was in Afghanistan. And so because the, 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 the hunger for knowledge was so palpable and so dominant in Afghanistan, especially in stark contrast with Afghan men who were you know, more reserved. And so if you ask the question in an interview, where do you see yourself five or 10 years of a man and a woman in Afghanistan, a woman would invariably say, prime minister or president of Afghanistan. A man would say, you know, I don't know, make stuff up. So the greatest loss we've had really is of Afghan women. Now having said that the greatest legacy that America and NATO left in Afghanistan was really the aspirations of its young people. And so we hope 
that through that comes the new Afghanistan, and whenever that is, we'll be ready to sort of help and move it forward. But at this moment, realistically, the security threat will be to look at and say, hey, nothing comes out. But the humanitarian issue is within it, and that will just do as best as we can through proxies, the UN and other international, till we get to another spot. So new Afghanistan, we shall have a new discussion on that. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Shabnam. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching or listening to this podcast. Do like or subscribe on whichever channel you have seen this or heard this. Namaste, Jai Hind.